All right. We want to keep on our study of uh, the attributes of God. And today we want to look at another one of his attributes, the holiness of God. And I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, pull it up on your, your phone, your, your uh, iPad, whatever you have. Uh, we're going to stick in this passage pretty significantly this morning. Uh, we won't be moving uh, around to other texts. We may mention a couple others, but Isaiah chapter 6, and we want to look primarily at verses uh, 1 through 8, and uh, we'll uh, look at a few other verses in that particular chapter. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God, and you follow along as I read. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy! is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, and then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today with gratitude for another week of enjoying your faithfulness, of having that consciousness that you have been with us. We praise you for your faithful care in every detail in our lives and now this morning as we come to learn a little bit more about who you are I pray that we would be tender toward you that we would be open and sensitive to your small voice and that you would speak in a way that we can understand and in a way in which each of us can experience transformation as did Isaiah we love you in your precious name I pray Amen. You may be seated. God calls his people to holy living. I want to say that one more time. God calls his people to holy living, but very few of us understand and know the God of holiness. Now, holiness is a word that causes a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. Uh, 
we sometimes have the wrong idea of holiness. Well, let me help to kind of clarify things for us this morning. Uh, holiness is not some sort of a, a theological deworming process. It is not cloistering ourselves away at some retreat center, uh, singing kumbaya, and just remaining in silence before God. It is not asceticism, denying ourselves of certain material possessions. Holiness is not suppressing personal desires or ambitions. It is not declaring that we will never get married or that we will always remain single. It's not priding ourselves on what we do or don't do. There are many, unfortunately, in the body of Christ that pride themselves on their do-goodisms. They don't do what others do. Holiness has nothing to do with those kind of external reactions. It's not being inept or non-competitive in the marketplace. It's not being mediocre and not exercising careful and strategic financial planning. Holiness has nothing to do with the smallness or a largeness of a congregation. In fact, there are some churches that pride themselves on being small. Their slogan is, we're little but loyal. We're small, but we're pure. We just kind of keep it amongst ourselves. They have no concept of the Great Commission. Holiness is not being all-knowing and having all the answers to all the issues and struggles in life. It has nothing to do with the way a person looks or how he dresses or how he or she appears. Holiness, write this down in your mind, is a matter of the heart. Has to do with that part of our lives that only God sees. The Bible says the man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And holiness has to do with our heart. Is our heart in a right relationship with the living God? It's not something external. It's something that is internal, where there is a desire for God, a ready obedience to his commands, and a desire to live as close to him as we possibly can. Unfortunately, many of us don't really understand God and his holiness because we've determined to live our life on our terms. And we see how close we can get to the world without getting burned, but most of us get singed. And the problem is, is that when everything is external and there's nothing internal that is being changed in our lives, we have a tendency to grow cold toward God. Today I want us to get a, a handle on holiness. I want us to understand how holy God is. It's interesting that that word holy appears some 600 times in the Bible. And in the book of Isaiah, as you study the book of Isaiah, you will read 
be, be reminded that Isaiah, his view of God, was that God is the Holy One of Israel. In fact, he repeats this over and over again in his book. In the first 12 chapters, it's referred to some 12 times, and then in the last number of chapters, it's referred to even more, which tells us that the longer Isaiah lived and the more he tuned into the voice of God, the more he was aware of the holiness of God. God is the Holy One of Israel. And Hosea, Hosea affirmed the same thing. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you, I will not come to wrath. Now, as we dig into this subject of the holiness of God, there are two principles that we need to keep in mind. Number one, the root word holy literally refers to the action of cutting. And hence, holiness came to be defined as something that is separate or set apart. And so the first principle we need to understand is that that God's holiness is his separateness, his otherness, his distinctness apart from the rest of his creation. God is completely unlike anything he has created. You see this in Exodus 15, 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic, here it is, in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. So when we think about the holiness of God, we need to think of him as being absolute separate, other, other related, other mindful than his creation. He is awesome. He, he is in a category all by himself. Uh, Dr. William Evans, in his classic work, The Great Doctrines of the Bible, says this, quote, God's holiness is the one attribute which God would have his people remember him by more than any other, unquote. Later on, this word holy took on the ideas of purity and brightness. And so the second principle, and you see it there in your program, is God's holiness is his moral perfection, his consummate purity, his brilliant light in contrast to human darkness. And again, you see this in 1 John 5 and verse 1. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. The original there, there is not even a speck of darkness in God. He is absolute pristine, brilliant light that no one can gaze upon and even live. And so in summary, the holiness of God refers to his separateness from all that is evil. And secondly, it refers to his absolute consummate purity and perfection. R.C. Sproul in his work, The Holiness of God, says this, quote, When the Bible calls God holy, it means that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above us that he seems almost foreign to us. 
And we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, the difference between God's transcendence and his eminence. God is a transcendent God, and when we speak about God's holiness, we're speaking about God as a transcendent God, but he is also a God who condescends, and he comes near his people. He is both transcendent and condescendent. And the message of the Old Testament centers around the holiness of God. In fact, as you read the Old Testament prophets, every single one of them was in awe of God's holiness. God was to them and he is to us today so holy and so pure that our eyes cannot gaze upon him in all of his majestic splendor. He is a holy God who does not ignore evil, but will respond to evil and punish sin and iniquity that goes on and on unchecked. Now, the attribute of God's holiness is ascribed to each of the persons within the Blessed Trinity. According to Isaiah 41, 14, God the Father is the Holy One of Israel. According to Acts 3 and verse 14, God the Son is holy and righteous. And according to Ephesians 4.30, God the Spirit is referred to over and over again in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit. All of the members within the Godhead are holy. Tozer summarizes it this way in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy and with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Now, no other passage in Scripture helps us to understand the, the magnitude, the greatness of God's holiness than the passage we're going to look at this morning. And I want you to note the first few words of this chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Those are very significant words that we cannot dismiss lightly. It seems as though that Uzziah, the king, had become almost a hero to many in Jerusalem and Judea, and he had become a hero even to Isaiah the prophet. It's interesting that this king was an honorable leader. He ascended to the throne when he was 16 years of age. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And most of his reign, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. For example, we can read all about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, 1 to 23. And I'm just going to give you a little idea of what this king was all about. Number one... According to 2 Chronicles 26, he was a God-seeker. 
He was a king who sought after God. He had sat under the teaching of the prophet Zechariah. And you'll notice in verse 5 of that chapter, it says that as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Here was a young king that started out well seeking after God. Number two, he was a military strategist. Verses 6 and 7, he went out to war against the enemies of Judah and won. In 2 Chronicles, Chronicles 26, 14, he had a well-trained army of some 300,000, and notice he equipped them with shields and spears and helmets, coats of armor, bows, and sling stones for the entire army. Here was a military strategist whose fame spread throughout uh, the land all the way to the border of Egypt. Number three, he was a master builder. He built towers in Jerusalem and in the desert. He dug many cisterns to provide water for all the livestock that he owned. He was a great builder. Number four, he was a great agriculturalist. He put many people to work. The Bible says that he loved the soil. Here was a guy that had tremendous interest and a breadth of knowledge. Number five, he was a gifted engineer. Verse 15, he made machines for use in his towers to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. This guy was at the top of his game. Number six, but when he became powerful, his reign ended and he became a leper. He started out well, but he ended up far from God. Notice in verse 16 it says, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. He becomes so prideful that he usurps a function that only the Aaronic priests were to perform, and that was to offer sacrifices in the temple. He becomes so spiritually proud that he does something that basically wiped off all the good that he had done. All the good things that he had done throughout his career, they are all wiped out because his pride leads to an incredible downfall. And Uzziah's death marks the end of a golden era of spiritual prosperity. Most of his reign there had been prosperity, spiritually speaking. But Uzziah's death was but the beginning of spiritual declension, which would result in the total collapse of the kingdom of Judah. And as we come to this particular chapter, chapter 6, Isaiah and the people of God are in the midst of a crisis in leadership. It seems as though the last remaining voice for righteousness has been silenced because of arrogance and pride. 
The king who had started out so well ends up so badly, he re, his life ends as a leper. But when Uzziah died, notice, when Uzziah died, Isaiah's eyes were opened to a whole new dimension of God. Once he took his eyes off his hero, God made known to Isaiah something that he had never seen before about the greatness and awesomeness of God. He gets a fresh glimpse of God in his pristine holiness. And Isaiah receives this vision that is absolutely essential if he's to carry out the command that God gives him after he really surrenders his life to the living God. God tells Isaiah he wouldn't face this crisis alone, but he would face it with the one who is the Holy One of Israel. Now I want you to notice what occurs in this passage. First of all, Isaiah receives a new vision of God. When Lord Tennyson was dying, his friends asked him, is there anything that you desire? And Tennyson replied, a fresh vision of God. You and I have just come out of a pandemic. We are in the midst of a crisis in leadership across the board, whether it's at the local level, the state or national level, there are all kinds of problems, international problems that no one seems to have any answers for. We are in the kind of a crisis as an American nation that Judah was in as Isaiah gets this fresh vision of God. Isaiah was facing turbulent times. And you and I, I can't think of another time when there's been more turbulence and more conflicting voices and, and, and just tremendous unrest as what's experiencing, what we're experiencing right now in our country. And if Isaiah needed a new vision of God... And he did. How much more do we? We need a fresh new vision of God. And you'll notice here that he sees God, notice, sitting on a throne, high and exalted. Look at the text. He is high and exalted. This is a picture of the fact that in spite of all the turbulence Isaiah's generation was facing and that we are facing, God is still in control. He is high and lifted up. He is the Holy One of Israel. No one can compare to Him. And it seems as though God is strangely silent. But in the silence... God makes known to Isaiah, and I believe he wants to make known to us this fresh vision that comes when our focus is upon him. Now, in verse 1, he is high and lifted up. 
He is sitting upon a throne and his, the train of his robe fills the temple. You could translate it this way. The, the, the sweeping length of his robe fills the temple. In other words, the presence of God is so real that he completely engulfs the temple with his presence. It says it's filled with smoke. The presence of God is so heavy there that it seems as though the whole temple is engulfed. <coughs> There's no room for anyone to stand. The temple is permeated with the presence of the Almighty. And as Isaiah beholds God high and lifted up, his train is filling the temple. He stands in awe, total awe of the Holy One of Israel. He's just about to be called into a ministry in which the sovereignty and judgment of God is going to be very clear. And he desperately needs to understand what God's calling him to do. Now in verse 2, above the throne of God stands the heavenly court. The seraphs, or you could translate that, the burning ones. These are heavenly beings that are hovering above the throne. Picture God high and lifted up on his throne, and overhead are the seraphs, which are heavenly beings who at a moment's notice are ready to do what God asks them to do. Now you'll observe that these seraphs, these angels, have six wings. Two to cover their face in reverence. They are in awe of the one sitting on the throne. Two to cover their feet in humility. For they realize their own unworthiness in comparison to the one who is seated on the throne high and lifted up. And two wings to fly. That is to do whatever the king asks them to do at a moment's notice. And this entire scene uh, is one of silence and awe and wonder as the presence of God fills this temple in Isaiah's vision. But this silent adoration on the part of the seraphs all of a sudden, notice, in verse 3, is interrupted. It's broken by a call and a cry of the seraphs, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the Hebrew sense there is that the seraphs are chanting this back and forth to one another as a gigantic uh, antiphonal choir holy 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 is the Lord Almighty is the Lord Almighty the whole earth is full of his glory the silence is broken by this chorus from the seraphs acclaiming the one seated on the throne as being the holy one of Israel the Lord Almighty and this continuous chant of the seraphs leaves a lasting impression upon Isaiah as he views 
this vision that God is making known to him. And for the rest of his life, Isaiah sees God as absolute holy. He is the Holy One of Israel. And as he continues to unwrap this vision, it's obvious that his burning conviction is that he's not serving some pagan deity, but rather a God who is high and exalted, who is absolutely holy and pure. And you see, equipped with an accurate knowledge of who God is, he can stand his ground and do the difficult work about which he is being called. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. The holiness of God. Here's the rub. We live in a terribly unholy world. In fact, we have taken unholiness to a whole new level. What the human heart can imagine today is so evil. We even invent ways to do evil. Everything that is being talked about in this passage speaks about purity and holiness and righteousness. And yet we live in a world today where unholiness is paraded as just the way we, we live. We've actually advanced. We've gotten so good, we, we, we can do whatever we want to. We can just sin, sin, sin. Nobody seems to care about that. I mean, that's the mark of a progressive society, is it not? It's amazing to me. The unholiness with which many of us live our lives. And it's crept into the church. Immorality is running rampant. During COVID, there was more alcoholism and drug addiction and spousal abuse and pornography. It reached epidemic proportions. And it hasn't stopped. We live in a world where evil is like that, that kudja. You ever go down to Georgia and those vines grow all over the trees? That kind of creeping vine? That's exactly what evil is doing in our country. And it's choking out life. Just like kudja chokes out the life of those trees. We are in the midst of an unholy and crooked, and the Bible says a very perverse generation. And God calls us as his people to what? To shine as lights. To be holy. That's God's calling on each of our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Notice, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
And that's a drop the mic moment. Boink. That's what God calls us to do. He doesn't call us to blend in and go along with all this stuff that is ruining people's lives. Does it bother us? Ah, most of us, you know, well, it's going to get worse before it gets better. God calls us like he is calling Isaiah. He wants us to live aware of who he is. He's a God who's absolutely holy and pure. His eyes cannot stand to gaze upon evil. And neither should our eyes. Now, number two. He not only gets a new vision of God, but he gets a new view of himself. Now, look at the text. He's facing a leadership crisis. His hero has passed off the scene. There is a leadership vacuum. And now, for the first time, Isaiah sees himself as he has never seen himself before. Now, he's no pagan. <laughs> I mean, Isaiah is a prophet of God. Now, just understand this. Here's a prophet of God, a man who's called to do God's work, and yet when he sees God in all of his holiness, in all of his absolute purity, he gets a view of himself that he had never had before. And notice what he says in verse 5. Woe is me. Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. This is the same expression of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament when he said in Romans, For I know that in me dwells no good thing. What a far cry this is from today. We live in a culture today that, that evil is rampant and people rationalize their evil. They want us to accept their evil. And if we don't, we're canceled. It's amazing. And it even happens in the body of Christ. We compare ourselves to one another. I don't do this. I'm a little bit better than that person. I do this. Oh, goodness. We, we do so much rationalization in the body of Christ. We're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. Every single one of us. We compare ourselves to each other, and, and we, we can look, look pretty good when we start playing the comparison game. But when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, it's a whole different, a whole different situation. And until we realize how far we fall short of God's glory, we will always have an inaccurate picture of who we are. And by the way, the goodness is not godliness. Goodness is measured externally, whereas godliness is measured internally. 
It's one thing to have the plaudits of man. It's another thing to receive the pronouncements, the favorable pronouncements of holy God. And far too many in the body settle for goodness, not godliness. Not so with Isaiah. Once he catches a glimpse of God and his absolute holiness, he says, Lord, I'm in trouble. I need an extreme makeover. You see, once we catch the awesomeness and the holiness of God, we see ourselves in ways we've never seen ourselves before. And he says, I'm ruined, verse 5. I'm about to be put out of existence. I'm a man doomed to die. Now, understand what Isaiah has just seen. He has just witnessed seeing and hearing these seraphs praise the living God. He has heard the seraphs chanting back and forth in praise. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They are filled with praise, exalting the king who is high and lifted up. And Isaiah wants to do this, but something had been holding him back. He's heard perfect praise from the seraphs. And he wanted to do that, but he can't. And he discovers that there's some things in his life, there's some, some areas of sin in his life that could no longer be ignored. Friends, if we don't deal with sin, whatever it is, sin will deal with us. And then he says it. He says, I live among a people. I'm not only in trouble, but I live among a people with unclean lips. Sin is running throughout the whole land, he says. The entire nation is unable to praise a holy God. What do you think Isaiah would say about the land of the free and the home of the brave? Do you realize our country was founded on biblical principles? You go to Washington, D.C., every single building has a Bible verse carved on it. All of our founding documents had scripture all over them. But today we want to erase all that. We want to take in God we trust off of our coins. There's an attempt to basically destroy everything that our founders held dear. And our country has abandoned the Holy One of Israel. And he is sad, he is sorrowful that this is happening. But he goes on to say, notice in verse 5, he says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
You see, when we get a glimpse of God in all of his holiness, we get a new understanding of who we are and how far we fall short and how far short everyone around us falls. I think of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a young, outstanding missionary to the Delaware Indians. He had a brilliant mind. He was a godly man. He walked so close to Jesus. And he would record his devotional thoughts in a journal. And in the journal, this godly man would oftentimes refer to himself as a dog. He would refer to himself as one who was a poor worm, a worthless wretch. Now, people today would read that diary and say, oh, David Brainerd has a, a bad self-image. He doesn't really believe in himself. Baloney. Here was a man who was so aware of the presence of God that he understood how sinful he really was. Let me tell you, the closer we get to God, the more we die to self, the more we will see ourselves as we really are and we will, we will just surrender to him. Now, I know this isn't popular today. You know, we like to feel good about each other. I like to feel good about myself, too. But this is the book. And as I understand the book, this is really important for us to understand that when we get a right view of God, we also get a right view on ourselves. And it's very interesting that when he gets a right view of himself, God doesn't banish him. God doesn't push him away. Notice in verse 6. He says, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Now, we don't know exactly what this was or what this even represents. But it would seem to indicate that when that seraph took that coal and applied it to his lips, there was something in Isaiah's life, the way he was communicating or the things that he was saying that needed to be surrendered to Jesus. Maybe it was something that was kind of a besetting sin. He kind of glossed over it, thought, thought it really didn't matter. But whatever it was, when that angel put that coal on his lips, his sin was cauterized. His sin was forgiven. And he is empowered with absolutely new life to accomplish all that God is asking him to do. You may ask the question, well, why was it necessary 
for Isaiah to be purified and cleansed. Well, John Calvin, the great reformer, answered that question with insight. Quote, it was because the Lord intended to enlarge and extend his favor toward him and to raise him to a higher dignity that he might have a greater influence over all the people. In other words, it was important that if we want to be a suit of working clothes that the Holy Spirit can use, we need to make sure that the things are besetting sins, those things that, that maybe we really haven't dealt with, we've kind of pushed into the corner of our lives, that those things be cauterized by the Holy Spirit. You know, oftentimes we wonder why God doesn't use us. And we wonder why it seems as though God seems far from us. And we wonder why we don't see great things happening. We can read about it. We see evidences of a God at work. And we wonder why isn't God doing that for us? Well, can it be? that maybe we're hanging on to some unconfessed sin. Maybe we're hanging on to attitudes that are not Christ-like, whatever it is. And we justify ourselves. We, we actually feel that we're justified in holding on to those feelings. You see, the mark of a surrendered Christ follower is that we surrender to Christ on His terms, not ours. It's interesting that that coal was not only symbolic of spiritual cleansing, it was also symbolic of God's approval on Isaiah's life. Remember when Elijah was facing the people at Mount Carmel? They were trying to call down fire from heaven. And you remember only one sacrifice was consumed by God, and that was Elijah's. Because his sacrifice pleased God. And the question I have to ask myself, all of us have to ask ourselves, have we been consumed with God's fire? Does God have all of us? Or are there some areas in our lives that we are kind of keeping to ourselves, refusing to surrender? I don't know what it's going on in your life I have no idea but God does and God gives Isaiah this fresh vision of himself and Isaiah sees himself as he's never seen himself before and then Isaiah receives a new voice to answer notice after the Lord takes away his guilt verse 8 then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. See, when we get a proper view of God, and we get a proper view of ourselves, we're always ready to do what God asks us to do. At a minute's notice, we're ready to do His will. We don't make all kinds of excuses. We don't throw out fleeces. We just do what the Holy Spirit has been nudging us to do. 
And it's very interesting that notice Isaiah says this. <clears throat> he says, here am I, send me. He has no idea where God's going to send him. Has no idea what the mission of God's going to be. But he's ready to do it. Well, here's the mission. How would you like this mission? Look at the text. Verse 9. And he said, go tell this people to be ever hearing but never understanding, to be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused and make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How would you like that? I want you to go to preach to people that aren't going to be responsive. They're just going to... But whatever you say is going to go in one ear and out the other ear. They're not going to change. They're, they're not going to do anything that you encourage them to do. But I'm calling you to do this. And Isaiah is ready to do it even at that moment when he doesn't understand what all that entails. I've discovered, and I'm sure many of you have as well, that sometimes God asks us to do things that are downright difficult. The voice of God today is found in the Word of God. If we want to know what God is saying to us, this book must be our guide. And when God reveals an area in our life, we need to deal with that. Don't put it on the back burner. Don't put it off for another day. How many times have we heard missionaries and different people say, you know, I wish I had just responded to the Lord a little bit quicker. If I had just obeyed the Lord when he spoke to me. My friends, when God speaks, we only have one response. And that is obedience. And it's very interesting that when we obey God and he sends us to hard places, he always goes with us. Because in Isaiah 41 and verse 10... God says to Isaiah, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I don't know about you, but that's all I need. That is all I need. And so, friends, when there is a crisis in leadership, when we're facing turbulent times and don't make a whole lot of sense, we need to do three things. Number one, we need to focus on the holiness of God. We need to be taken up with God. We need to see God high and exalted and lifted up. Number two, we need to forsake the sin that trips us up. We need to, you see, the enemy knows your weak point. <laughs> he, 
he, he never attacks you at your point of strength. He always attacks you at your weakest point. And if there's something that's been going on in your life that you haven't confessed, he's going he's gonna to bring that up to you over and over again. Best way to deal with that is to just forsake it, confess, turn away from it. And then the third thing is follow God with all of our hearts. I don't know about you this morning, but I do know this, that God is at work in all of our hearts. I don't know what's on your heart this morning. I want you all to bow your heads in prayer. Do you need a fresh vision of God this morning? Is there something that you need to surrender that you've been kind of holding back from? Maybe God's calling you to do something you don't want to do. And you need strength to do what you know God wants you to do. But up until right now, you've, you've been fighting this. But this morning, you just say, Pastor, I want to surrender to Jesus. I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning, but God does. I don't believe anyone is here by accident. There's some of you that maybe need to make a first-time commitment to Christ. There are others of you that maybe need to renew your commitment. You've kind of gone off the rails. But this morning, you understand that God is a holy God. You want to praise God with all your heart, but something's been holding you back. If you've identified what's holding you back this morning, I'm just going to invite you. We're just going to play a little bit of quiet music. And if you want to come and do whatever you need to do here at the altar, the altar's open, okay? Just going to spend a few minutes. If you don't want to come, if you want to surrender to Jesus, whatever's on your heart, you can come. You can leave this place just like Isaiah did, with zeal to follow the Lord fully. So we're just going to take a few moments. Just get up wherever you are. You can come and do business with Jesus. Whatever you need to do, just come on down. You guys pray. Don't be looking around. God's at work. God's speaking to hearts. Let's just get right with God. Let's, let's, let's let him take over. Let's let him be our master and our Lord. Those of you up in the balcony will wait for you. If you need to come and whatever you need to do, just feel free to come. There will be others of you who have come and pray with these that have come. Just come and surround them with your love and your prayers. God's speaking to hearts. Sweet way. Wait for just one more moment. I want to thank you for listening this morning. I've gone a little bit longer, but the Holy Spirit is here in a special way. Anyone else? Just open it up for a few more moments. I'm going to stay with some of these folks up here and I invite elders and others if you'd like to come and pray with these that are up here please come this is a holy moment and as you leave this morning I want you to leave with, the, with joy in your heart 
that you belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that he has met us today in a very unique and special way. Father in heaven, we do love you. We do praise you for who you are. We are so unworthy. We need you so much. Thank you, Lord, for the sweetness of your Holy Spirit that nudges us toward you. And for these that have come and are just settling the issue between you and them, we give you praise. And as we leave here today, may we do so in the strong name of Jesus. Now let us stand and I'll give the benediction. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning and Maranatha. God bless you.